In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom, and I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a very judiciary-focused episode for you. Um, Quite it's supremely, not all, actually. It's supremely judiciary-focused. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not like you know. Last week we talked all about abortion. We got you know all those thoughts out. This week we're not talking about abortion. We're talking about some of the other shit the Supreme Court pulled recently and what they're likely to pull later on. And then we're going to end up having a dis- uh, a discussion about a, a ruling that they made that Nathan and I might disagree on. Yeah. In fact, so far, it appears like we actually disagree um, on the outcome of this case. Yeah. So, so I'm looking forward to cool. that discussion because we don't yeah. disagree very often. I know. I know. I'm, I'm really interested to see how that comes out. I might bet. Uh, here's my prediction. And and for the listening audience, Nathan and I have talked about this just barely. Yeah. We haven't really delved in at all. We basically realized that we disagree and then we're like, oh, don't touch it. Yeah. My prediction is that you will agree with me on what we think the outcome of this case should be based on the facts, but that we will disagree about the principles if we slightly tweet the facts. Uh, if we make the facts a little bit less egregious. Yeah, I think we will disagree. That is that is definitely possible. Uh, I I don't know though, because I based on what I've seen, I think we still disagree. Mm-hmm. But there are some things that have given me pause. Yeah, and it's possible that there are some things that I just I just haven't read yet. So mm-hmm. we'll, well see what happens. Yeah, we'll get into it. We'll, we'll get, get into, into that. Let's I think not. Let's not. I'm kind of excited. A little jittery about it. Yeah. Nathan and I haven't like had a debate yeah. <laughs> since we were in, like teenagers actually yeah probably yeah probably um speaking of things speaking of things that give me the jitters michael Mm -hmm. what are the covid numbers oh boy uh so far in the world we've hit 558 million cases and last week we had a daily average new case uh count of 807,000. uh as a reminder the week before that our daily average new cases was 716,000. So that's up 13% this week versus last week. Um, in terms of death, worldwide, we've hit 6.37 million deaths, which an, with an average daily death count over the last seven days of 1,377. Uh, the prior week, it was 1,378, so pretty much flat in terms of daily average uh, total deaths. Um, in terms of vaccination, uh, We've hit 66.7% of the world's uh, population with at least one dose. In the U.S., we've hit 90 million cases with an average daily new case uh, count over the last seven days of 76,000, which is down from 105,000 the week before. So that's down 28%. Um, And in terms of death in the U.S., we've hit 1.05 million. uh, And over the last seven days, we averaged 117 uh, deaths per day. Um, which is down from 265 deaths per day the week before. So that's down 56%. And so far, uh, 78% of the U.S. population has at least one dose, and 67% has two or more doses. So pretty much where we were. 
I think we're getting to this place with COVID where it's still a deadly disease. Yeah. It's not as deadly as it once was. And um, it's just kind of circulating yeah. and evolving. Like we're seeing new sub variants, um, but nothing that's like shooting numbers spiking up. But there are like general fluctuations of increases and decreases in case count. Yeah. Well, it looks like also some of the variants have been less severe variants, mm-hmm. which again does not mean that it's not dangerous, but it does sure. mean that we're starting to get to a place where, I mean, society is feeling more and more normal. Yeah. I mean, I still wear a mask a lot of the time when I go out in public, Mm -hmm. but it depends on where I'm going. depends on how many people are there. And I've been feeling like for the most part, I can see, I can see friends that I, that I know. Yeah. Although usually that's, Usually those are friends that I know are vaccinated as well. So that's sure. that's also an important factor. Yeah. I pretty much moved through the world assuming most people are vaccinated, which is, I guess, yeah, pretty factually true. I mean, most people like, are, but it depends on yeah. where... I mean, where you are, you're in where Northern you, Virginia. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, where I am. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's... <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, that's there's like point. three Trump flags on my block. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I've gotten into this habit, good or bad, which is maybe is like less where masking is like less dependent on like my view of like the risk. Although if I'm going to like a, a really dense area, I totally yeah. wear a mask. Oh yeah. But like often it's like part. it's mostly influenced by like the social norms. Yeah. I just like want people to feel comfortable yeah. around me. So if yeah. like people are going to feel comfortable with a mask, I wear a mask yeah. and all that. Well, like the other day I went into this, I went into this antique store and you know the guy was wearing a mask. I I I, I didn't have a mask. I had I had mm-hmm. forgotten to bring one. He was wearing a mask, and um and he, you know he 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 looked up and greeted me. And I thought, oh, hey, do you have a mask I could borrow? And you know mm. I, I I took one of his masks because I was like, well, he's wearing a mask, so I assume that means that. So so I decided, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll wear a mask if that's yeah. you know. Um, yeah. I mean, it was it wasn't a crowded shop and it was only me and him. And I think it probably would have been fine, but sure. you know, I, I, but I assume the proprietor of an antique store is old. <laughs> um, not really. Actually. It was, oh, interesting. It was like, wow, interesting. like forties, you know, mm. like forties or fifties. Well, certainly the, the person that he lives with is old. Just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Okay. Nathan, enough jokes, enough levity. <laughs> yeah. The Supreme court is, yeah, is no laughing matter. Very true. Yeah, so for our first segment, we're talking about um, some of the upcoming cases. So the Supreme Court just ended their 21-22 term. Uh, they are on recess for the summer because yeah. they are, you know. Yeah, they, they, they finished their legislative session. Yeah. It's, it's actually really funny, some of the, I'm just having this thought now, some of the terms that are used to like talk about the supreme court like they serve while on good behavior <laughs> they take recess during the summer it's like very very childish yeah. <laughs> um but anyway so, so the behavior i don't know that sounds more like a prison yeah well fair <laughs> enough that's a good point um but so they will restart their uh 2022 2023 term uh starting in october and they're they already have a number of cases that are teed up for 
uh, oral oral argument. So that will yeah. be scheduled and heard during that term. And considering the partisan slant of this court and the fact that they don't care about precedence and they're pretty blatantly ideological. Yeah. Some of these some of these court cases that are going to be put before them are extremely concerning. Yes. So yeah, especially because like if you look at the cases and some of the so there are twenty three cases that are coming in front of the court. It's actually like kind of a low number uh, relative to like previous years, but the thing is, many multiple of these cases are cases that under normal circumstances would be like the single most significant controversial case yeah. in front of the court. But there's like a few of those, which makes me really worried for the exact point you laid out, Nathan. Well, and it's also, it's no accident that a lot of these are coming before this specific Supreme Court because yes. you can bet your ass that there are a lot of Republicans that have been waiting to bring a specific court case or to to, to write a law that they know would be challenged or to to do an action that they know would be challenged yeah. with the hope that a more favorable court would give them a more favorable outcome. Yeah. One of the things though, that I do want to address is something that we talked a little bit about last week and that's the future of gay rights, mm -hmm. specifically gay rights and the Supreme court. And I actually want to be a little bit of a calming voice on this. Yeah. So, I would say that based on based on what I've looked at in terms of of gay rights in the court and when we're talking about that we're talking specifically about the Obergefell case which legalized marriage equality and the Lawrence decision the Lawrence v Texas case which made it so that states could not create sodomy laws mm -hmm. um meaning basically they couldn't outlaw uh anal and oral sex so the reason why a lot of people are concerned is because a lot of the same wording from the from the court case that overturned Roe versus Wade were also present in those cases. Meaning meaning that the justifications for Roe, specifically the uh, the equal protection clause, the um, the the due process clause in the Fourteenth Amendment. We're also present. We're, we're present in Roe versus Wade, but we're also present in the in the Lawrence decision and the Obergefell decision. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are concerned about that specifically because Clarence Thomas, in his concurrence, specifically said we should be looking at these, and he also tacked on the Griswold decision, which made it so that states could not outlaw contraceptives. So in terms of gay rights, though, I do want to just give a little bit of a a relief to people. So one, one argument that people are talking about is the fact that in Kavanaugh's concurrence, he specifically said that, um, that the, the marriage equality decision, the, 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 um, a Bergefell decision was established precedent and they weren't going to touch. Now I don't trust that. Yeah. I don't trust them writing that they're not going to do that in the future. But what I do trust is what justices have already done. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to Neil Gorsuch. Yeah. So Neil Gorsuch, he actually ruled in a, in a Supreme Court case. This was in his capacity as a Supreme Court justice. This wasn't prior to the Supreme Court. This wasn't a 
hypothetical. This was an actual opinion that he wrote. There was, there was a challenge as to whether or not LGBTQ protections fell under the Civil Rights Act. So the Civil Rights Act has a specific section that, that prohibits discrimination based on sex. And the opinion that he wrote was that because sexual orientation and gender identity by necessity take into account sex, that it counts as gender-based discrimination. And that basically made it so that states had to incorporate those same protections into the law, meaning that mm -hmm. the, the protections under the, Civil Rights, under, under the Civil Rights Act apply to LGBTQ people. That was yeah. an opinion that, that Robert signed on to and that Neil Gorsuch actually wrote. Yeah. So I don't think that this current Supreme Court is going to overturn Obergefell, and I don't think it's going to overturn Lawrence. Yeah. I just, yeah, I, I don't. And that's based on what the people on this court have done previously in their capacity as Supreme Court justices. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, it's telling that Thomas was alone in yeah. his dissent. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, like other people weren't signing on to try to, to overturn those cases. Um, like the... And, and you're right that, like, the numbers put it just in favor yeah. of protecting gay rights if if Roberts and Gorsuch uh, both would join the liberal yeah. wing to protect those things. Yeah. And if Kavanaugh was telling the truth, which, I mean, I don't yep. trust his ass, but, you know, I mean, sure. if he yeah, was, I'm a little then, bit, yeah. I'm a little bit less sure about Kavanaugh just because... I think I think I've seen him like flip flop on things before, especially yeah. with like non-binding decisions and stuff. He's like yeah. he's like not super consistent. Gorsuch is much more consistent. The only worry I have about Gorsuch is that it's very clear in the Civil Rights Act that discrimination based on sex and the logical corollary of discrimination based on gender uh, or sexual orientation, excuse me, um, would violate like the text of the law. I worry a little bit about any any non-textual extension of existing rights. Yeah. Like like Obergefell and um and uh, Lawrence potentially being dependent on the right of privacy, due process, things like that that he's he is like a little less obviously that are like a little less obviously in the text. Perhaps, um, but but remember that Remember that the Obergefell decision specifically ruled that equal protection yes. covers sexual orientation. And yeah. if it is already established precedent, which it is, that the equal protection clause also applies to, to sex, and that is yes. established precedent. Yeah, yeah, for then sure. Following and one that, that Gorsuch believes and, in. And one that Gorsuch believes in based on his past yeah. rulings, then yeah. he'd have to he'd have to rule in favor of it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the argument that you can't prohibit same-sex marriage for the exact same reason that you can't prohibit, uh, that you can't allow people to discriminate based on uh, sexual orientation, that's like exactly, pretty much exactly the same reasoning. Yeah. Maybe I, I feel a little less confident about Lawrence, um, but Obergefell seems pretty, like, much more clear. Yeah. 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 Um. So and I, I say that not to necessarily say, like, stop going all crazy, because honestly, the Supreme Court did kind of flip the world upside down for a second. And I think and it makes sense. To. 
and, and yeah, and, and, and plans to do more. So I think it makes sense to be cautious about things, even things that we think are probably safe. So I'm yeah. not saying like, you know, calm down, don't be concerned. I'm just saying based on past rulings by the specific court justices that would be the deciding votes, mm -hmm. I don't think they're going to touch Obergefell. Yeah, if if it if that's the thing currently giving you panic attacks, then then I don't <laughs> take a few deep breaths. Yeah, say, um, but there are definitely other things that should give you panic attacks, uh, yeah, such as and... the death of democracy as we know it. Mm, yeah, imminent <laughs> death. Yeah, quite imminent. Yeah, so, death. so I don't. So yeah, a... I don't want to. I don't want to overstate it. <laughs> but we could be heading for the imminent death of United States democracy as we know it. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, we, we don't want to. Yeah, right. Shouldn't overstate that. Um. <laughs> so why is that, Mike? Well, as we mentioned, there are 23 cases that are on the docket for the 2022-2023 term. Not all of them are the death of democracy. Mm. Just some of them yeah. are the death of democracy. Just, just a few. Here um, and there. Yeah, just here and there. So, so let's start with one that's like squarely on the death of democracy train because there are others that are that touch things like affirmative action touch things like or subjects like um the ability for the epa to regulate uh water rights yeah. um and carbon emissions for that matter well they just decided that one yeah. so they just put that one so down. that one's the death of humanity as a whole not just democracy. sure sure you're right you're right <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, we are so fucked. <laughs> I was going to, yeah, I was thinking I should probably play this at the beginning of the segment. But let's start by talking about the death of democracy. Um, so when you're talking about the death of democracy in the upcoming term, of course, you, you would be remiss if you glossed over more v. Harper. Um, so this is an upcoming case that concerns uh, something called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine which theorizes that state legislatures alone are empowered by the Constitution to regulate uh, federal elections without oversight from state courts. That's what, that's what this doctrine is. So this spe case is specifically about gerrymandering and whether state courts have the power to review uh, clearly unfair election maps. Um, so this case is specifically about North Carolina, um, and in November 2021, the North Carolina General Assembly adopted a new congressional voting map uh, based on the 2020 census. Um, and uh, the legislature, which was controlled by the Republican Party, um, established this map and was sued by uh, a group of affiliated uh, Democratic voters and nonprofit organizations. Um, and the North Carolina Supreme Court ruled um, that the state could not use the map in the 2022 elections uh, because it was so clearly partisanly gerrymandered, which was uh, a violation of the state constitution. Um, and so they said they couldn't use this map, and then they uh, remanded it to the trial court, uh, the lower court, uh, to adopt a new congressional map uh, drawn by three court-appointed experts. So that's where, that's the status of this case right now. And it was granted a writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court um, when they appealed. And essentially, the Supreme Court could come out kind of a few different ways, depending on how much they want to uh, 
undo the ability for state courts to literally enforce the constitution of the state, right, in the administration of federal elections. So the court could, you know, seek to just clarify that state courts. So just to clarify, the court, the Supreme Court, it only takes four justices to grant certiorari to an opinion or to, you know, a lower court decision. So it's very possible that the Supreme Court could still vote to affirm um, the the uh, ruling that the state can't use this partisan map. But if they decided not to affirm that, they could just, they could say that courts can't uh, draw new electoral maps, but do have the authority to, you know, reject them or nullify them. Yeah. But they could also go all the way to saying that no, to embracing this independent state legislature doctrine um, and say that no state court has the power to, uh, like oversee the administration of federal elections at the state level. And let's understand what that means for a second. That basically means that the laws that were passed by the state legislature and signed into law by the, by the executive, that the state legislature just can ignore them. Yeah. Again, they're the ones that made the laws, but they mm-hmm. can just ignore them if enforcing them are inconvenient. Because yeah. remember... The judicial branch is about judging whether or not a law has been broken. All right. Yeah. Interpreting the law that, again, was written by the legislature. But this would say, like, if they if they if they did that nightmare scenario that that Michael talked about, this could basically say that a state legislature could create a list of rules and laws and policies regarding how a how the administration of an election can go like yeah. on a, on a federal level, by the way, not just on a state level, on a federal level, yeah. a federal like the, election. The, the presidential election, they can say, here is how we do it. All right. And, and how most of them do it is the popular vote in this state means that all electors go to the person that won that popular, that, 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 that popular vote. All right. That's how they do it in almost all states except Maine and Nebraska. All right. But with this, the state legislature could pretty much just violate their own laws and say, well, we don't agree with our state. So we're just going to appoint our own state of our our own group of electors and then give them to whoever we want. That's that is such a prescient and true worry. See, that's that's the crazy thing about this is they could literally just reject the laws of how they're like they could literally select a method for choosing presidential electors, state and or you know their their senate members, their house members. They could they could select a method for doing that and then the state legislature after election night could be like, "You know what? Never mind." And the courts would in the state court would be powerless yeah to to oversee that and prevent them from taking that and, action and because you might think that that's crazy how could that ever happen <laughs> yeah. trump fucking tried to do it trump fucking tried to do it and that's the thing so i worry a little bit about this because we have textualists and originalists on the court and article one section four clause one of the constitution says the times places and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in this in each state by the legislature thereof but the congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators 
So basically, what that says is, it doesn't have to be the popular vote. <laughs> this The legislature gets to pick how electors are allocated. It's by convention, by institution, that it is the popular vote. It's by those state laws that it is the popular vote. Yeah, And to an extent, I think it makes sense for them to have certain power prior to the actual election. So like, for example, sure. there's, there's, yeah. um, there's this push right now to basically institutionally get rid of the, the popular or the, 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 the electoral college by sure. making it by, by doing this nationwide agreement in which uh, a certain amount of states will agree to send all of their electors to whoever wins the popular vote. Right? Yeah. And if that has already been established prior to the election, then I think that makes perfect sense. If a yeah. state wants to say, you know, if a state like Nebraska or Maine wants to say, hey, we're going to we're going to have at large like we're going to have an at large amount of electoral votes that determine uh, who like where our our where our electoral votes go to. Uh, but then we're also going to have individual districts that mm -hmm. can also decide where their electoral vote goes to. If a state wants to yeah. do that prior to the election, I think they should yeah. be allowed to do that. I think that that makes perfect sense. But that's not what this is about. This is exactly. about after the election has already happened and them just saying, you know what? Fuck democracy. Fuck the courts. We're just going to give them to whoever the hell we want. And we yeah. know that that is a concern because Trump tried to fucking do it. And if yeah. this ruling had happened, had already happened, it like Trump could have actually done that. Like if if the Supreme Court had ruled, had already ruled on this case prior to the 2020 election, Trump could have potentially stolen several states, potentially yeah. enough to win. Yeah, it it just totally weakens our protections from a more successful version of the big lie scenario. Yeah. And the, the the thing that's worrying about this is like it's not just, oh man, we dodged the big lie bullet now now we're good to go so we can weaken protections and we're all fine. Because we know that conservatives are organizing at the state level to implement weaker protections for the integrity of our our voting systems. So Barton Gelman wrote in the Atlantic, uh, quote for more than a year now, with tath, tacit and explicit support from their party's national leaders, just a side note, yeah, we don't even, it doesn't even have to be Trump at the head, right? Yeah. It doesn't even have to be our legis, like our like elected federal leaders of the Republican Party or the GOP, right? It can just be a bunch of state level, like Trump fanatics, like big lie bullshit artists that are implementing all of these limitations of a representative democracy. So the quote goes, um, for more than a year now, with tacit and explicit for support from their party's national leaders, state Republican operatives have been building on an, an apparatus of election theft. Elected officials in Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and other states have studied Trump's crusade to overturn the 2020 election. They've noted the points of failure and have taken concrete steps to avoid failure next time. Some of them have written statutes to seize partisan control of decisions about which ballots to count and which to discard, which results to certify and which to reject. They are driving out or stripping power from elected officials who refused to go along with the plot last November, aiming to 
replace them with uh, proponents of the big lie. They are fine-tuning a legal argument that purports to allow state legislatures to override the rule of the voters. And if the, and, and so that's the end of the quote. If the Supreme Court rules in this case in favor of this doctrine of an independent state legislature, there's nothing to prevent that from happening. Yeah. No protections are left. What a cheery thought. What a cheery thought. The demise of democracy. Yeah. No, <laughs> Should we it, talk about the demise of the human race? <laughs> I mean, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So we've already mentioned that there's the West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Ag- Agency case that was just decided where the cool court ruled um, to curtail the ability of the EPA to regulate the energy sector um, by limiting emissions uh, and controls of individual power plants. Um, that, that means like a significant weakening of environmental protections and, the, and just the ability of the EPA to implement environmental protections. Yeah. One thing I want to call out here is that this is not just about the environment to the Supreme Court. This is about weakening the administrative state, right? This is about weakening administrative agencies, which do a lot of our legislating, right? Yeah. Like Congress delegates authority to these administrative agencies, which are staffed then by the executive branch, Um to administer laws. They actually make laws and enforce them, right? Yeah. Because we can't fucking pass anything in the legislature. It would be totally unruly to try to run a country yeah. passing a one law at a time, yeah. right? And that's and that's what Robert said in his opinion. Like, yeah. he, he basically said that it might be within our best interests to regulate carbon emissions. However, that power should stay with the legislature. But the thing is... That is by design because yeah. the legislature does fucking nothing because of the yeah. goddamn filibuster. Yeah. So like, it's like the yeah. systems of checks and balances. It's not checks and balances. It's just finger pointing. It's like, sure. it's, it's, it's a game of finger pointing whack-a-mole. It's yeah. like the legislature, you go to the legislature, they say, well, our hands are tied because of the filibuster. Go to the court. You go to the court. They say our hands are tied because of, you know, I don't know, the, the ghost of George Washington spoke to me in my sleep last night. Yeah. You know, go to yeah. this, go to the legislature. And the only, yeah. the only agency that actually really does things consistently is the executive branch, which interestingly yeah. enough, at this point, the executive branch is the most democratic institution mm-hmm. in the country. Yeah. Because first off the, the Senate is, I mean, is definitely not democratic. Mm-hmm. The uh, the House of Representatives is completely fucking gerrymandered. Yeah, and even if it was Democratic, can do nothing without the Senate. Yeah. So and even if it was Democratic, can do nothing without the Senate. So the executive branch, which by I mean is true, is ruled by the Electoral College, which is not Democratic, but it's more yeah. Democratic than the legislature at this point. Yeah, it's yeah. more like at this point, it is more reflective of the will of the people. Than yeah. the legislature. Yeah. And and ultimately, we want administrative agencies to be able to administer, administer the government, <laughs> to regulate things. Like, like to Nathan's point, like, even if we had a great representative functioning legislative branch, 
they can't they couldn't possibly keep up with the changing world that faces us. Yeah. Imagine if the ATF, the the agency that administers uh uh regulation of firearms, right? If if they didn't exist, right? And the legislature wrote, "You know what? Certain things are going to be illegal like missile launchers. Those are illegal." And then the missile launcher manufacturers wanting to sell more missile launchers go, no problem. We will rebrand them as a over-the-shoulder hand cannon, <laughs> right? Then the legislature would have to pass another fucking law to include that, yeah. right? But when you have an administrative agency, they're able to keep up with those kinds of changes, right? Yeah. So we want them to be able to do this. And the Supreme Court and conservatives in general dislike the administrative state because they don't want things to actually be functioning right that that sounds terrible but they they don't want administrative state when it comes to regulating big businesses they love the administrative state when it comes to policing when it comes to border patrol when it comes to ice when it comes to cracking down on protesters yeah they love the department of homeland security yeah surprise (laughs) and and the military when it comes to bombing children overseas they love that And so one of the things that the Supreme Court has been focused on in order to weaken the ability of the administrative state to keep up with the world, uh, specifically these, you know, the, their favorite target, the EPA, to keep up the world, is targeting a, a legal principle called Chevron deference. And this is essentially the idea that an administrative agency should, should generally speaking, be deferred to with regard to the scope of their own Uh, like jurisdiction, right, of their own delegated authority from the legislature. Basically, the idea is you're the EPA. You were instilled with the power to regulate uh, and protect the environment. You're the experts on that. We're going to defer to you when figuring out how best to do that and what exactly your writ of your grant of authority is to protect the environment. We're going to defer to you. That is a long-standing part of uh, administrative law and one that the Supreme Court has been chipping away at. That's exactly what they chipped away at with the uh, West Virginia versus EPA case, right? They said, "You know what? You actually don't have the ability to regulate emissions because it wasn't expressly granted to you, even though you think you do, and even though it's squarely within your general authority to regulate to protect the environment. And this case, which is coming up for this coming term, is going to do a very similar thing. So this is Sackett versus Environmental Protection Agency. Um, And it involves a couple uh, that has a piece of property um, which is been federally regulated as protected wetlands Um, and basically the couple wants to be able to build on this property but it's protected as wetlands and a ruling in favor of the couple would significantly expand the ability of developers to build more houses without allowing the federal government to regulate you know uh, you know the uh, disposal of pollutants and the like ability to protect like uh you know scarce natural resources from uh development and so the the question at issue in this case is whether the clean water act should be applied to wetlands right at the time in 2006 uh, there were four justices led by anthony scalia that concluded that the law did cover wetlands uh 
only if they have a continuous surface uh, a continuous surface connected to a river, lake, or other major waterway. Basically, if the wetlands can, you know, pollute or affect a large waterway, um, they can be included under the Clean Water Act. Um, Justice Anthony Kennedy offered up a different standard, uh, which he called like a significant uh, nexus to one of those large bodies of water. But essentially... Um, the idea is that, you know, as long as it can be connected to the Clean Water Act, it's governed by the the Clean Water Act. Um, and so the question is, so so in this case, the Ninth Circuit found in favor of the EPA, right, that they could regulate the, you know, the development of this property on wetlands um, under this Chevron deference doctrine where the EPA was said, yep, you know, as part of our Grant, as part of our grant, as part of the Clean Water Act, we can let, uh, you know, regulate wetlands. So the fact that the Supreme Court, we know they're gunning for Chevron deference, we know they're gunning for the EPA, and they've taken this case, which had gone in favor of the EPA, and they've granted a writ of certiorari to be heard in front of the court, is very, very worrying that they'll continue to chip away and curtail the power of administrative agencies, specifically the ones they don't like, to protect us. <laughs> So now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, Good Actually. So Nathan, why do we do Good Actually? Because the world sucks. Yeah. The world shit. Shit. But sometimes, if that, you those, look... Those two initial sentences sounded like, like a Linkin Park song. The world sucks. The world shit. But sometimes, sometimes, but sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't do, uh, I can't do his voice. Rest in peace, brother. Anyway, um, sometimes when you look around, very, very deeply, mm-hmm. you can see that, hey, there's a good thing over there. And hey, there's a good thing over there. And there's a good thing over there. And you realize, you know what? Good actually is all around us. So, Michael, what is our good actually this week? This is bittersweet. Exactly (laughs) in that good actually thing. Yeah. Because it's shit. Yeah. But there's a little bit of good in there. (laughs) Yeah. A little bit, a little nugget of goodness. So, if you haven't been living under a rock, you know that July 4th, over the weekend, uh, ushered in a new bout of mass shootings, yeah. including a shooting that left seven dead uh, in Chicago. Yeah. Which is the shit part. The good part is that one of them was stopped. So police in Richmond, Virginia, our home state, said that on the 4th of July... They were actually able to prevent a, a planned mass shooting in the state capitol. So a, a tipster overheard a plot targeting a 2,400-seat amphitheater uh, hosting July 4th celebrations. Um, and they were able to work with Department of Homeland, Se- Homeland Security and the FBI to uh, seize two assault rifles and a handgun and 223 rounds of am- ammunition. Um, and arrest a suspect 
um, uh, that was planning this this mass shooting. Yeah. So huge, I mean, huge credit to the tipster. Yeah. Like that's nothing short of heroic. The yeah. the Richmond police, the, the Department of Homeland Security, you did your job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there were a lot of tragedies that happened on, uh, on the 4th of July, but one was prevented by quick action from people that, stepped up and did something yeah and that's that is something that should be celebrated for sure and that's good actually so for our next segment we're talking about a more ethereal concept that is everywhere in the news these days uh and that is the legitimacy of the supreme court or lack thereof or lack thereof exactly (laughs) So, yeah. so I think we should like, like talk about this as concretely as possible. Cause like when I hear like legitimacy of the court, it's like, well, you know, yeah. you know, what makes a court legit, you know, like, yeah. you know. well, 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 but that's a little bit difficult Yeah, because the thing about the Supreme court and, and I'm not just, I'm not just saying this out of nowhere. There is historical precedent behind me saying this. Mm-hmm. The legitimacy of the Supreme Court is based on the pa- fact that people think it's legitimate. One hundred percent. Which that's why it matters that it's legitimate. <laughs> yeah, which is why it matters that it's legitimate. Which is why it matters that, as it stands, according to a Gallup poll recently, only twenty-five percent of people say they either have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court. Twenty-five yeah. percent. That's almost as bad as Congress. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, that's worse than Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More people think Joe Biden is legit <laughs> than the Supreme Court. And and yeah, that's the thing. Like, it really matters uh, because it's about us trusting and believing that at the end of the day, whether we whether we agree with the outcome or not, we believe that it is the correct legal outcome. Right. The courts legitimately rests on the idea that it follows the law, that it in, that it's not about personal or ideological preferences of the justices, that it is specifically about interpreting a cl- complex body of laws in accordance with like generally accepted political like principles of law and the United States. It's what what gives the court its legitimacy is the fact that it's not a highly political or that it's not supposed to be a highly political institution. And even if it is politicized, it is able to make uh, judgments interpreting the law to the best of their abilities based specifically on, you know, the facts of the case and the legal record. Right. Yeah. You've often, you've probably often heard Michael and I, talk about on this pod about how the United States is not just a democracy. It's a democratic Republic, right? The democratic parts are of course the legislature, or at least they should be. All right. The idea is of a democracy is that the people make the decisions. All right. In a representative democracy, the people decide who makes those decisions. Yeah. In a Republic, the idea behind a Republic is that you have a certain set of laws and nobody is above those laws. 
And yes. in order to have a functioning republic, you have to have an institution whose job it is to interpret those laws. Those laws, maybe they were passed by the will of the people, or mm -hmm. theoretically, the will of the people. But whether or not those laws violate the supreme law of the land, the Constitution, or the civil rights of others as, as dictated by other laws— Mm -hmm. is really important for people to for to yeah. to, to to keep in mind yeah. so for example <laughs> if a state passes a law that is blatantly discriminatory based on race which would violate the civil rights act of 1964 mm -hmm. you need to have some institution come in and say hey that's not fair you can't do yeah. that yeah. and strike it down so it is important for there to be a legitimate Supreme Court. However, mm. there isn't one. Yeah. Like that, that the, the, yeah. the issue here is, and one of the things I want to make very clear, I, and, and one of the things I've heard from some other people on the left recently is questioning the entire concept of judicial review as being basically a, a shit thing to begin with. Hmm. And I think that that's, not the right approach. I think that in a lot of ways that's a stupid approach because there are a lot of a lot of examples of yeah. judicial review based on the constitution coming to decisions that were absolutely necessary yeah. and carried the weight of um it carried the weight of a landmark piece of legislation. Yeah. Think Brown versus Board of Education. Mm -hmm. Think um think about Obergefell. All right. You know, think about Roe versus Wade until it was yeah. overturned. I mean, yeah. uh, think I, about I think, I think that's a really great point. Like people talk about the Supreme Court as if it is inherently conservative and inherently anti-progress, which yeah. like I think in some ways you can make that argument. But just because it's it can be slow moving doesn't mean it's anti-progress. You know, like the court is the court is intentionally evolutionary. Yeah. Right. It is the process of of enabling the court to change its judicial decisions is an iterative and slow moving one by design. Right. Partially that's because it would be a huge compromise to the integrity of the court for it to be changing its mind all the time. We have like it because because part of the legitimacy of the court is the legitimacy of the actual existence of the law, the law of the land, right? If the law of the land can be just changed willy nilly, the fundamental laws of our, of our system can just be changed and just changed by a non-democratic body specifically, then we don't really have, the law doesn't really exist at that yeah. point, right? It's just enforced. Yeah. Um, and so part of believing that the law actually exists is is making it consistent, making it and making it persistent. Yeah. So that I means mean, that like you have to change the law slowly. It means it takes it takes court cases and arguments and those 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 linchpin cases, those cases where we have significantly changed the court's mind. Yeah. Right. Brown v. Board, as Nathan pointed out, Obergefell, um, like you know, Roe, uh, 
like actually more Griswold. Those cases are a culmination of years of moving the court via argumentation in a specific direction and then an ultimate recognition of a principle that is more deeply aligned with the founding principles of our laws than was previously recognized. Yeah. One of the things that I think a lot of people don't recognize is that in the early days of our country, there were a lot of instances in which the states would straight up just ignore the Constitution. For sure. Like, for example, right now, today, we think about freedom of speech and we think about freedom of religion as, of course, like, everybody has freedom of speech, freedom of religion, which means that no state government, no federal government can make any laws about, like, infringing on either of those things. However, the original interpretation of the Constitution, according to several court cases, was actually that because the 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 first amendment says of congress that only refers to federal congress so there sure. were actually states that yeah. were passing laws that were infringing on free speech and were establishing their own religion yeah. and it took court cases of judicial review to finally say hang on that's not what they meant yeah for us to finally today recognize those as just universal freedoms that the state that the states cannot infringe on that is because of judicial review and that's important. All of that being said, I, I, we say all of this to say that the fact that the Supreme Court is becoming less and less of a legitimate institution is a bad thing. Yeah. But we also cannot ignore the fact that that's where we're at right now. And I mean, a huge, you know, let's let's not forget whose fault this is. I mean, it's fucking Mitch McConnell. It's the mm -hmm. Republican Party. It's. Yeah the ways in which they have slowly it's the federalist society it's the ways in which yep. they have slowly turned it into a political arm yeah in which they have abandoned procedures in order to do everything they possibly can in order to make it favorable to their own policies yeah. all right that is why you have this ideologically stacked court that is why the republicans have the republican presidents have only won one popular vote in the last 30 years, and yet they have a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court. Like, a six out of nine of the Supreme Court justices on the Supreme Court were appointed by Republican presidents, despite the fact that they've only won one popular vote in the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. All right? That is insane. And they have been consistently handing down decisions based on that ideological shift that completely and blatantly go against the will of the people. Yeah. So there is historical precedent for the Supreme Court being just completely ignored. And some of them are a little bit scary. Some of them make sense. So one of them that is a little bit scary, and I want to I wanna read the, I, I want to talk about this as an example of why it is bad for the Supreme Court to lose legitimacy. Yeah. All right. So first I want to talk about the court case of uh, 1832, um, Worcester v. Georgia. So in, in that court case, the Supreme Court, and this is, this is according to Vox, the Supreme Court ruled that the Cherokee Nation 
constituted a sovereign entity with rights in its territory and that could not be overruled by state governments. At the time, the president was Andrew Jackson, who was famous for hating Native Americans, who was famous for trying to seize Native American lands to give it back to, or not to give it back, to to steal Native American lands and give it to, uh, give it to citizens. Whitey. Yeah, give it to white, give it to white people. Um, and his response to that, to that Supreme Court ruling was basically, and this is the, he famously said, "quote." Marshall, referring to the Chief Justice John Marshall at the time, Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Yeah. Basically, I have the army. You got nothing. Yeah. And this is what led to the Trail of Tears. Yeah. That we, you know, yeah. that if you, you know, if you went to a school that doesn't, that doesn't hate history, you, you would have learned about that in school. Yeah. I'm like, I think we've said it a number of times on this show, a bunch of shows like ours talk about it. Institutions really matter. Right. Yeah. And the fact that the Supreme yeah. Court doesn't have an enforcement mechanism, doesn't have an army, doesn't have a police force means that it is an institution and yeah. it requires legitimacy. It requires respect in order for it to be effective for it to have force. So losing legitimacy means that, it loses its force. Yeah. You basically have to be like, it basically has to have the level of public support that violating it is tantamount in the public eye to violating fundamental constitutional principles. The kind of thing that people would like go to war over. <laughs> yeah. Like that's the thing. We are the enforcement mechanism. We have to be the enforcement mechanism, which means they have to mean something to us. Yeah. Another time that this happened was during the Civil War. So at the time, uh, right at the beginning of the Civil War, the Chief Justice was uh, Roger Taney. And this guy, to call him a racist bastard would be like calling magma Warm rocks. <laughs> Warm rocks, exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, so this is the guy that famously wrote the Dred Scott decision in which he basically just said that black people are inferior and should be allowed to, like, and are ju basically just exist to serve white people. So Abraham Lincoln, already not a fan of this guy. All right. So at one point, uh, Abraham Lincoln decided to suspend habeas corpus for uh, for people suspected of being a part of the Confederacy. Now, by the way, I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think mm -hmm. that you should be suspending habeas corpus even in times of of war. Of war. Like, I I don't think that should happen because you got to make sure that you're catching the right people. Um, but he had suspended that, and there is this famous case. There was this guy named John Merriman who was suspected of being a part of a conspiracy to arm rebel groups. All right. And he had been, he had been caught on suspicion of that. There had been no trial and he was detained. So Tanny released, uh, basically a court order, um, that was called an, an, an ex parte. This was referred to as the ex parte Merriman 
decision in which he said to the people that had originally caught John Merriman, hey, you got to let him go. You can't just suspend habeas corpus here, to which the guy said, uh, well, Lincoln commanded me to do it, so take it up with him. And so Tanny goes to Lincoln and Lincoln basically says, okay, try to stop me. Mm. And, you know, the the Supreme Court had no ability to actually do anything. So again, the Supreme Court was, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court was completely ignored. And on top of that, and this is at, like, when I read the history of the ways in which the Republicans at the time packed the court, which I, I do just want to make one thing clear. This is back when the Republicans were the good guys. Yeah. Like, this is back <laughs> when the Republicans were the anti-slavery party. So the reason why they were wanting to pack the court and wanting to, like, take control of the court was to put justices in there that were friendly to anti-slavery policy. Also, let's let's be clear, friendly to the actual legitimate, like, government you know, like, yeah, that too. It's, it's a that it's too. a small stretch to pack the court with people that don't support the insurrection. Yeah, that's, <laughs> of a part that's, of the nation. That's another thing. At the time, the court was basically like it was thought of as um, the last stronghold of Southern power, which uh, that was one Northern editor wrote that at one point. Five of the sitting justices were were from the South. Right. Again, these were these were southern states that ended up seceding. And that this was this was at the time of the Dred Scott decision. Five of them, five of the judges were from the south. Wow. And so what they decided what they ended up doing was expanding the court. So so at the time, the number of court justices was based on how many circuits there were. Because like the the justices, the specific justices would preside over their own circuit. So at the time, there were nine justices. And Lincoln expanded it to 10 justices. This was from the Circuit of California and Oregon. He expanded the court to 10. And then after his assassination, President Andrew Johnson took uh, took the presidency. And he was he was a Democrat which means that he was basically he was a racist. I mean, at the time he was a racist. He was a unionist, but he was also a racist. The only reason yeah. why they chose him as a vice president was to try to be an olive branch to the South. And as soon as he took office, he basically started trying to undo all of Lincoln's reconstruction efforts. Yeah. Like, and tried to fight against civil rights for black people within, uh, you know, within, within the nation. Um, and at one point he actually threatened to appoint like-minded justices. And in response to that, the Republican led Congress passed a law. It was the, the judicial circuits act of 1866, which shrank the number of federal circuits to seven, which basically means that the president, the chief executive cannot fill any Supreme court justice seats until there are less than seven. Oh man. <laughs> and they actually decided. And at the time Democrats went along with it because they were like, well, at least this means that if a Republican gets elected, that they can't, they can't, uh, they can't put in more justices. Right. Mm -hmm. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Enter Grant, 
Ulysses S. Grant, who became president. And when he became president and they wanted to, they wanted to start uh, bringing, they wanted to start bringing justices. This was in, um, in 1868, they passed the Circuit Judges Act of 1869, which raised it back to nine justices. <laughs> <laughs> so under Lincoln, they raised it to 10. Under Johnson, they lowered it to seven. And then under Grant, they raised it back to nine. Hmm. Because they wanted, they specifically wanted justices that were friendly to Republican policy, which again at the time was anti-slavery and pro-civil rights, and you know, pro and pro-reconstruction, single nation, <laughs> and pro-single nation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there is precedent for that. Another example of it, and by the way, this is one where the history is just taught in a hilariously biased way, and that's FDR. So here is the version of this story that you were taught in schools. So during the Great Depression, FDR wanted to pass a bunch of policies, a bunch of New Deal policies, um, in order to help get us out of the Great Depression. And there were a few instances in which some of the older justices on the Supreme Court tried to uh, overturn some of his laws. In fact, there were at least three New Deal policies that the Supreme Court straight up overruled. And in response to that, he tried to expand the court. So he wanted to expand the bench by six justices, one for each justice over the age of 70. Oh my gosh. All right. He wanted to expand it by six justices. Now, his attempts to do that would have, would have required legislative change because remember, at this point, the, the number of Supreme Court justices is going to be based off of what the law allows um, based on Congress. Now they can change that, but that's that's the only way that you can that you can change that law. All right. Now, the bill failed, and this is often held up as look at this colossal failure by FDR. He did this, and it was terrible. It was stupid, and it undermined his legitimacy. But here's the part that they don't tell you. So I mentioned that there were at least three New Deal policies that the Supreme Court, um that the Supreme Court had struck down. He starts this push, and literally right after that, there are three more New Deal policies that they upheld. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I seem to remember there being a New Deal. Because so there seems was like a, a New Deal. to me. <laughs> so here's the thing. We're taught this as basically a, like this, is, this was a, a colossal mistake or a, a, a defeat from FDR. But the thing is, his ultimate goal was not to expand the court. It was to implement policies. And he was able to do that. Yeah. And he did that because he threatens the legitimacy of the court and forced their hand. That's what happened. All right. They wanted to keep themselves legitimate. So naturally they were like, oh, well, fuck. We don't want this to succeed. So we better like, like the threat of that is what led to them is what led to them upholding new deal policies and is what allowed there to be a new deal. Yeah. So the important point that I'm trying to make is number one, expanding the court has historical precedent when the Supreme court is issuing laws that either marginalize 
a vulnerable population or blatantly go against the will of the people, there is precedent in expanding the court or even attempting to expand the court in order to either force their hand or create a more balanced ideological court. And at this point, the ideological balance of the court is so out of whack that it's not even about packing the court. It's about balancing the court. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's it's telling that at this point, 66% of the U.S. population is in favor of term limits for justices and 45% uh, favors packing or expanding the court. Which is a plurality. Yes, it is. <laughs> like, that's, it's, it's, that's big. They yeah. have really lost public confidence specifically because of the overt politicization of the court of, of the court and political scientists that study this have seen um, this correlation where the more politicized, the more obviously um, motivated the reasoning of the court, the, the lower their approval rating and the lower public confidence in the court is so it's a clear problem when the court is so explicitly uh, so explicitly uh, partisan. One of the things that a lot of people have been bringing up is the idea that multiple justices, basically all three justices appointed by Trump, essentially lied about their views on Roe, yeah. right? So ultimately, so, so all of them said during their under oath hearings that it was good law, the law of the land, um, but ultimately, all of them voted to overturn it. So, like, to steel man that position, right, maybe their positions were just factual statements, right, that Roe is good law, it's the law of the land. Um, and maybe we disregard things like Susan Collins talking about um, her vote for Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh and saying that their decision to overturn Roe was, uh, was inconsistent with their... Uh, quote, testimony and their meetings with me, where they both were insistent on the importance of supporting longstanding precedents and the co- that the country has relied upon, right? So, so maybe, we, maybe we disregard, you know, that as lying. The thing to me that makes this so clearly undermining of the legitimacy of the court um, is that their answers were obviously clearly misleading, Right, because they were just kind of factual platitudes to get to to like get confirmed. But most importantly, it's that this case didn't even explicitly raise that issue. Yeah. Dobbs they had to go out of their way in Dobbs to overturn Roe v. Wade. They yeah. could have sided yeah. uh with a fifteen week abortion ban, right? Which is what and the case was about. Exactly, and not overturned Roe. So it's so clear to me. That by saying Roe was good law, by saying it was the law of the land, by saying they respected precedent, that they were lying for political purposes because any measure of judicial restraint, even if it was motivated by conservative ideology, would have led them to a 15-week abortion ban, which would have been terrible, but it wouldn't have been as undermining to the legitimacy of the court as overturning Roe when it wasn't necessary to reach the outcome in the case. 
So now it's time for our favorite segment, Asshat of, of the, the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Michael, I could not be more happy to introduce this week's ass that keeps on hatting. It's Candace Owens. Ooh. Candy O, come on down. Cheerios, come on down. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What did, so what did Candace Owens do to get on our show this time? So, uh, you know that controversy that you've been seeing a lot of people talk about in terms of like um, New York uh, and kids going to, gra- uh, to to drag shows and stuff? Like mm. apparently there's like these these drag story hours where these dudes show up just in drag and read stories to children. Oh, that's so sweet. That actually, yeah, that does sound sweet. I mean, you know, and and if you're somebody like us who is not. A, a freak and thinks that everything to do with drag is automatically sexualized and, you mm. know, always has your head in the gutter. You would look at that and be like, I don't see the problem. Yeah. Uh, Candace Owens has a different take. And in fact, she even mm. goes further. All right. So not only does she disapprove of parents taking their kids to drag shows, she goes a step further and makes the argument that parents who in any way try to legitimize their own child's trans identity are bad parents and should have their kids taken away. So let me, let me, let me read you what she said. She said, quote, and you're seeing right now that adults are getting behind this narrative so they can have a woke t-shirt and say, I love my child. I allowed my child to pick their gender and pick their species, which side note, the whole species thing, that's not a thing. What is that? I haven't heard that. It's this, I know what a species is. No, no, it's this, it's this bullshit that conservatives keep saying where they're like, well, if I can pick my gender, then I can pick my species. So I identify as a barracuda. Like, like shit like that. <laughs> that's so straw man Yeah, I know. So it's weak. so fucking straw man so funny. Also, so like, no one also... is t- saying kids can pick their fucking species. No one is saying that. You idiots are saying that. But also... So what? Yeah, like, wh- you know what? what? We, when what, I was a what, kid, <laughs> when I was a kid, um, I I acted like a dog for like a week. I yeah. stayed in character, you Great. know. And my my parents my, were just my like, nephew okay, acts whatever. like an extinct animal. Like he acts like a dinosaur. Big yeah. fucking surprise. Big fucking deal. Like <laughs> they're not, kids. That doesn't matter <laughs> even a little bit. It, like like it's not even like you can be. It's not even like if you started to treat kids like animals, like in like, you know, like, you know, like that would be a risk, you know, you're just like, you're just, you're treating like kids being animals, you know, yeah. like maybe they're, maybe they're an endangered species. Who gives a shit? <laughs> no, 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 no. If I, I don't, I don't know if Candace Owens has any children, but like if they, if they do anything that is not human, she, she <laughs> smacks them and sends them to the room. Aww. Like they bark like a dog. She's like, Hey, you're a human. Yeah, you're a human. They whistle. They're like, what are you a bird? <laughs> Anyway, she continues, quote, and they feel proud of themselves because they can go and they can say this on Facebook, that they are wonderful, accepting and loving adults. When in reality, they are underqualified to have children. They should have their children taken away from them because it's child abuse. Jesus Christ. That's it's child horrible. abuse. The opposite is fucking true. Like, mm. and, and the research shows that. If there is a trans child and their parent is constantly delegitimizing their trans identity, 
all of the science shows they, they you know uh, these conservatives are always saying they care about science when it comes to discussions of gender all of the all of the sociological research shows that that makes them more likely to have suicidal ideation an argument could be made in fact that not legitimizing gender identity among children is mm -hmm. child abuse yeah and by her logic means that you should have your kids taken away now i'm not going to go that far mm -mm. because i think that at the end of the day when it comes to when it comes to figuring out what's best for a child you have to figure out what is going to cause the least amount of harm and in some situations you know if you're looking at a at a you know damage versus benefit analysis in some situations you might have a case where a child really should be removed from the care of an adult who is mm -hmm. abusive and that's going to be less damaging to a child. But at the end of the day, taking a child away from a parent is going to be damaging no matter yeah. what, even yeah. if they are an abusive parent, it's going to be damaging. So if you're going to take a child away from a parent, it better be a really fucked up situation. Yeah. So even I'm not willing to say that you should have your child taken away from you if you don't like automatically if you don't legitimize the trans identity like i would not go that far but mm -hmm. apparently she's going that far in saying that if you do the thing that is scientifically recommended that is considered let that is considered uh to be a strategy for ensuring that your child does not have suicidal ideation if you do that you should have your kids taken away fuck her man that's fuck candace awful. owens that's awful that is just She's just trying to. She's just trying to one up everything. It's yeah. this is its own form form of virtue signaling. Yeah, like for sure. they always complain about how the left virtue signals. This this is what they do. They try to out conservative each other. If you legitimize your dog's cat identity, <laughs> that's next. <laughs> You're gonna have your pet taken away. Yeah. You know. You know. Uh, my my dog is a lab who is technically a water dog, and she hates water. So wow. the fact that I don't force her to you swim. You must force her. Yeah, Put her in. <laughs> I need to force her to swim. Otherwise, I am I'm abusing her. Yep, that is that <laughs> seems right. So congratulations to Candace Owens for being this week's Ass Hat of, of the, the Week. week. So for our third segment, we are talking about uh, a case uh, recently decided by the Supreme Court with Neil Gorsuch authoring the majority opinion called Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. And it is um, a case that Nathan and I may end up disagreeing about. Um, and we think we probably have different starting positions uh, when we talk yeah. about this case. Um, and it regards a football coach praying at the 50-yard line um, uh, after games. And... Essentially, the argument in the case uh, is that, and and this then this coach was notified that he should not be praying at the fifty yard line um, following games by the school district. He ignored this uh, this guidance, um, continued to to do it, um, and importantly, he also escalated these prayers um, to get more media attention to get like uh you know uh more participation from the players and and fans um and ultimately was not rehired by the uh by the school once his contract expired 
Um, and he was suing the school district, um, claiming that this was a violation of his free speech um, and, uh, and his freedom of religion um, to not be rehired in his position because he was explicitly not rehired because of his violation of school policy uh, limiting you know, these kinds of prayers. Yeah. So the main disagreement here comes down to the two different sections of the freedom of religion clause in the constitution in the first amendment. Mm -hmm. You have the free practice clause and the establishment clause. So the free practice clause says that the U S government cannot make laws preventing a person's free practice. And if you're looking at it from the coach's point of view, that's what applies here because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, he was practicing his religion yeah, and he should be allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. But then the other side of it is the establishment clause, which is basically about how the government cannot establish its own religion, meaning that it cannot promote, endorse, or, uh, or favor one religion over another. Mm -hmm. So then the argument is, what the, the question then is, was this guy a representative of the state government mm-hmm. using that position in order to promote his religion? Now, yeah. I want to kind of lay out my argument. And then I, you know, based on my understanding of the case at this point, I've, mm-hmm. I have done some reading up of it. It's, it's possible there are things that I've missed. So I, you know, I'll, uh, after that, I want to give Michael a chance to kind of be like, "Hey, you're you're wrong about this, or there's more to it." Cool. Um, but I will say, I will flag, just to start before you go into your argument, Nathan, that that may very well be true, because upon reading the opinion and the way it's categorized characterized by the Supreme Court, the way they're characterizing it is pretty clearly factually false. Yeah. Um. So like, they have accepted a set of facts that is yeah. more in favor of their finding than the facts accepted by the lower courts. Well, so, so, so basically the, what Neil Gorsuch is arguing, he's the one that wrote the majority opinion. What he argues is that this was a quiet prayer and there was no coercion and no direct encouragement for other people to join. Cause, cause the, the, the issue is for a while when he first joined he had been doing this by himself and no one, no one batted an eye. No one cared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People only started to care when some of the other students started joining him, which for me, that's, that's one important part of the case. All right. Mm-hmm. No one cared when it was just him doing it. They only started caring when other students of their own free will decided to join him. Mm-hmm. Now you can argue that when students started to join him, when other students started to join him, that started to potentially put some pressure on other students to join him. But the fact of the matter is that didn't start until other students were doing it. Sure. Right. To me, that's an important fact. Now, another thing that I think is, is important to note to your, to, to to your point, he did start raising a ruckus about this because he Mm -hmm. was going on media tours about it because, because it started out with the school basically saying, Hey, could you not do that? And also, you know, I, Again, to in your favor, a point in your favor, the schools did say, hey, could you maybe wait until people are gone? No. Okay. Well, hey, how about this? We'll give you a place that's a little more private where you can do it by yourself. 
All right. And I think that those are important facts. And I think that those are relevant because they weren't saying, you know, you're terrible for doing this. They're just saying, hey, could you could you not do this in such a public venue in which he came out and argued basically, well, no, it is it is my religion that it must be right here in front of everybody, which like if I'm looking at that from the perspective, like from not a legal perspective, but just like another person perspective, I'm kind of like, no, it doesn't like, no, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, I've, I've like the Bible specifically does encourage private prayer. So no, it doesn't. But again, I don't get to dictate what your religious views are. If that's totally. what you think your religion says, then that's what your religion says. Sure. All right. So, 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 so there's also that another important fact. And this was the one thing that kind of gave me pause was at one point he directly said that he was doing this to try to make his, his students better people. Mm hmm. And that part actually does give me a little bit of pause because I yeah. hear that and I think, so you were trying to encourage them. Is that it? Sure. Now, based on what I've seen, it doesn't appear that at any point he was saying, come on, come, come join me. Which to me, that's the most important fact, mm -hmm. right? The moment he says, come join me, that's when it becomes coercion. But if it's just, hey, y'all, I'm going to go do this. You know, even if he says, you can join me if you want to. Like, even that, I'm like, okay, well, if they want to join him, they can. If they don't want to, they don't have to. Yep. Right? Now, the reason why the school had initially terminated his employment was because there was one student who was an atheist who had told his mother that that he was feeling like he had to join into them even though he was an atheist or he, he had to join in on the prayers, even though he was an atheist. And I think that that's relevant, but I don't think that that should be the end all be all. Cause again, from my point of view, and I'm, I'm saying this as somebody that grew up as a secular within a school that was in Southern, that were not Southern Virginia, but like that was in rural Virginia surrounded by a lot of people that were religious. And at several points, when I expressed that I didn't, that I was not a Christian, that I, that I was secular, that I was non-theistic, that I was atheistic. I had, I had students bully me. I had students make fun of me. I had one student like yell at me and tell me I was ungrateful. Mm -hmm. Like <clears throat> I still did experience some of that, just you know, some of those struggles that come from being a secular kid in a school surrounded by people that are, um, they're not. In fact, at one point, there was this, there was this thing that this group of students in my school did. It was like see you at the poll, where mm -hmm. basically there was this specific day where a bunch of students and some of the faculty would go to the flagpole, hold hands, and and pray before the school day. And one day, this. Uh, the student, this random student comes up to me in high school and hands me this flyer. It was like, I see you at the poll thing. I was like, oh, what's this? And she was like, oh, we're doing this prayer thing at the front of the poll. And I was like, oh, okay. And I gave it back to her and I said, have fun with that. And I, <laughs> and I went on with my day. And I mean, I understand that some people might feel differently, but I just, I just don't think that a person's feelings over whether or not there is an indirect social pressure to conform to the people around you should necessarily 
guide other people's behaviors. I don't think that it's fair for a person like, and again, as a, as a secular person, I don't think it's fair that me as a secular person should control whether or not another person expresses their own religion. So long as they, even in an official, in their official capacity are not coercing me because I think about it like this. What if the coach was not praying, but it was just wearing a cross necklace. Are you not allowed to do that? Well, what if other students start wearing cross necklaces? What if every student on the team start wearing cross necklaces and I'm the only one that's not? Does that mean that they have to ban cross necklaces? What if it was a, what if it was a Muslim who was offering, who was, you know, praying at the field, um, offering a, an Islamic prayer in the field, like before or after a game. All right. You know, would that, I know that a lot of people are pointing that out as like, oh, well, I bet conservatives would rule differently if, mm -hmm. if it were a Muslim. And yeah, sure. I'm sure they would, but I wouldn't feel differently. Sure. Like, so I think that that's, yes, you can point that out, but I think that if we're being internally consistent, we should allow that and we should allow the Christian prayer as well. Mm -hmm. So I just, that's where I'm at at this point. Yeah. Why am I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So. Yeah, like as as you have pointed out, there's like so much going on in this case, and there's a yeah. lot there's a lot of like actors and roles and activities, and it's kind of like a factually heavy case in yeah. general. Um, so I think like one thing to call out is I think like a couple of examples you offered were like of students taking actions, yeah. and I think the Supreme Court and the law is pretty clear that in those kinds of cases um s free speech is kind of the reigning protection yeah. in that case right yeah. like banning students from wearing crosses would be like a free speech issue um and that's been pretty heavily protected I even in schools even with like dress codes and things like that yeah um which makes yeah which makes total sense the 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 same protection is not as strictly applied for employees of the state in their capacity as employees of the state because freedom of speech doesn't apply to the same degree in that capacity. If you think about you, um, you like can't abstain from your 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 required duties as a state official, for example, because of freedom of speech or freedom of religion, right? You're still required to perform your activities fully and impartially. So like yeah. if you think about like the the court clerk who denied a marriage license to a gay couple because of her freedom of religion. Um that is a violation of her duties as an employee of the state. She doesn't have those same rights when she's acting as as and and I think that's like a much more clear case than this yeah. one. Um but like the rights don't apply in the same way once you're a representative of the state. So then a really important question arises like is the coach a representing the views of the state when if if he were to be if we did find factually that he was endorsing a religion endorsing religion generally then the question would be is he representing the state is he acting in his capacity as a state as as a representative of the government when he is endorsing religion and that would be a pretty clear excessive entanglement endorsement of religion violation of uh the establishment clause right yeah. well he's clearly endorsing religion he's I mean, clearly endorsing very religion. clearly endorsing religion 
But, I think that that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but but like, he's not coercing it. It's it's something that is part of his per- like every single article that I've been reading, and I've re- mm-hmm. tried. I've read a lot of op eds sure. that are that are arguing what you're arguing. Yeah, and. I just like a lot of a lot of the wordings just feel so self-defeating. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, the government, uh, the, the Supreme Court deals a blow to freedom of religion by allowing someone to practice religion. It's like, sure. Wait, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, and, like, and, uh, I mean, just on the surface, that does not smell. That doesn't pass the sniff test. I totally and, agree. And 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 again, I w- w- like what I've said. The moment he said, "Come here and join me," is when my is when like my defense ends. Yeah, but I haven't seen that. All of the things that I've said that I've read have been like, "Well, yeah, no, he didn't directly do anything, but indirectly, <laughs> indirectly, it's like that's well, really interesting. Those people you... are not reading all of the important opinions related to well, this case. Well, well, because 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 if it's if it's indirect, again, it. I think that. One of the things this comes down to is that can we have a discussion as to whether or not maybe it's a little bit inappropriate or whether or not it makes him a bit of an asshole? Sure. Does it make him an asshole? Maybe. Does it mean he should be fired? I don't think so. Okay, so let's let's get into the should he be fired thing okay. a little bit. Okay. Um, so I think there's one interpretation of this case represented by Neil Gorsuch. He says, quote, Petitioner Joseph Kennedy lost his job as a high school football coach in the Bremerton School District after he knelt at midfield ad for games to offer a quiet, personal prayer. That is the most favorable light for this yeah. case. So if we go back to the Ninth Circuit um, writing about this case, um, which I did because I got a tip from a podcast that that was an interesting place to look um, So after the circuit court found in favor of the school district, um, Kennedy appealed to be heard on bonk, which means by all of the the judges of the circuit, not just the three-judge panel that originally would hear the case. And so you appeal to be heard on bonk to basically be able to say, hey, these three judges, they got it wrong. Uh, It's the same venue, but we're going to be heard by a larger group of of, uh, judges. And writing for the court in denying uh, the en banc hearing, uh, uh, Judge Milan Smith wrote, quote, our colleague, Judge uh, Oskalian, appears to have succumbed to the siren song of a deceitful narrative of this case spun by the counsel for the appellant. That's, that's Kennedy. To the effect that Joseph Kennedy, a Bremerton High School football coach, was disciplined for holding silent, private prayer. That narrative is false. Although I discuss the events in greater detail below, the reader should know the following basic truth. Kennedy was never disciplined by BHS for offering silent, private prayer. In fact, the record shows clearly that Kennedy initially offered silent, private prayer while on the job from the time he began working at BHS. Yeah. Yes but added an increasingly public and audible element to his prayers over the next approximately seven years before Bremerton school district leadership became aware that he invited players, the players and a coach from another school to join him and his players in prayer at the 50 yard line after the conclusion of the football game. 
He was disciplined only after Bremerton School District tried in vain to reach an uh, accommodation with him after he, in a letter from his counsel, demanded the right to play or to pray in the middle of the field immediately after the conclusion of the games while the players were on the field and the crowd was in the stands. So according to the facts observed by the circuit court that were, you know, in a full hearing, he did invite players to play with him, to pray with him. His prayers were not silent or personal towards the end uh, when he was offering them. They were vocal and loud. Um, and he was offered the ability to pray in a way that wouldn't show an explicit endorsement of religion by the coach when he was acting, when he only had access to the field because he was a representative of the school. He was acting in his capacity as the coach, right? Mm. And at that point, he was offering these prayers. So, so wait, so what you're saying, so let, let's, let's assume that he was like not the coach, but someone in the stands, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. you're saying that someone in the stands would not be allowed to get up from the stands and just walk over to the, walk onto the field and do the prayer. Is that it? I'm, I'm under the impression because, that because, that is right. Because he, he has, had, because he has, he was specific not just, access to it because he's the coach. He's allowed to be on the field. But if it's after, but if it's after the game, can't people come down and just like do whatever? Like if it's after the that. game, I feel like. Yeah, I don't know. Cause, but the thing cause is that like, could change things for me to me. Like to me, so the, the Supreme court emphasized a lot, the timing of the prayers in this case, like, because they were really trying to figure out whether he was in his capacity as a representative of the state when he was making these prayers. According to the, the sources that I've looked at historically, it's not about when you make the prayer in establishment clause cases. It's about the venue. And the fact that, yeah, that question of, is he on the, on, you know, on the field giving a prayer as the coach? Yeah. And I guess, like, I think you could argue kind of either way. I'd say, what would a reasonable person in the stands believe was he was, like, the position he was occupying? Would a reasonable person in the stands go, oh, that's just a private citizen out there. Or would they go, hey, that's Coach Kennedy. And I think that's like, yeah. I think that's pretty significant. Judge Smith also goes on in the facts of the case. And he said, quote, eventually he led the team in prayer in the locker room before each game. And some players began to join him for his post-game game prayer too, where his practice ultimately evolved to include full-blown religious speeches to and prayers with players from both teams after the game conducted while the players were still on the field and while the, the, stand, the, the fans remained in the stands. So this included pre-game prayers in the locker room as well. Hmm. Which, like, to that me, is that's like access. that seems that like is, special that access. That right there is that special access. Really entangled. See, see, that right there is more important to me than the praying on the field. Uh huh. Because yeah. because a spectator in the stands, they're not going to have access to that locker room. Sure. The only reason why he had access to that locker room was because he was a coach. Yeah. So exactly. that right there actually might make a difference for me. Yeah. I think but, just yeah. I think ultimately, like, so ultimately, I think 
honestly, the facts in this case are not super advantageous to the position that freedom of religion, like to expand freedom of religion, the conclusion that the court reached. Because yeah. they've got this pre-locker thing. They've got like, he's like, he's like inviting press at one point, like after making a Facebook post and inviting press to the, and like media, they like flooded the field endangering did, students I, yeah. and stuff like yeah. there was like all, a stampede yeah exactly yeah. I and mean, like all based on his encouragement to well, escalate this issue in order to get more attention about his endorsement as an employee of the state but, <laughs> for but religion you, but, but what do you say to the i to the fact that before people started joining him nobody yeah. gave a shit yeah like it wasn't until people started joining him and again it sounds to me like yeah i mean what, I mean, what's an invitation? Does that mean, hey, I'm going to go pray. You can come over here. Or is it, hey, I'm here praying. Come over here. Yeah. Like, it, so yeah. to me, that's like exactly what he said is also important. Is Yeah. And which, I haven't, I haven't been able to find a transcript yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, which probably doesn't exist. Probably, I yeah. doubt people were <laughs> recording yeah. like when his, his, uh, his interaction. It's like, oh, one day this is going to be on the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he might have been actually. But I think, I think it's also interesting that like in this case... I think it's a little distinct even from a teacher because so first of all, I think there should be, let me just be clear. I think there should be a fully bright line between any representation of religious uh, endorsement by state of like by school officials, anytime they are on a prep on official premises. Um, I think there should be a bright line between that. I think no crosses on teachers in a school is, should absolutely be the case. I, I completely disagree with that. I, and so I that's where I think we're going to disagree. So, is that, yeah. so does that, so does that mean like uh, no hijabs either? Good question. Does that mean no, uh, no yarmulkes? I guess. I'm not I think okay so. with that. Like, I'm just, the thing, I'm not okay with that. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe that's not, maybe that's a, maybe that's an inconsistent position. I think like, I think, I am like this is this this is this is the issue that I have right now with the way that the left is talking about this. Sure. And that's that I mean they oftentimes point out the hypocrisy of like I'm yeah. you know oh well if this was a muslim you know mm -hmm. or if this was you know uh maybe a, a sikh you know wearing a yeah, turban yeah. if this was a satanist you know yeah with a pentagram or some shit like that, that wouldn't be okay. That the right yeah, yeah. would probably not that the, the right wing slant of the court would not side with them. And yeah. I agree with that. I think that's absolutely true. I think that this right wing court would not side with them. Yeah. I, yeah, I yeah. really, I do think that, but that's their bullshit principles. Sure. That's their inconsistent. Yeah. Principles. Maybe, maybe I back we away. We need to have that's consistent principles. Maybe I would back away from like clothes. Yeah. Like dress. In general, maybe that's yeah, that's a fair point. Like, if someone's wearing like, you know, uh, a bonnet, which like Mennonites wear, or yeah. like, like okay, you can wear your clothes, um, <laughs> well, perhaps. But but how is and but like how and is like that across maybe that's is, the, yeah, but how is that different fine. from praying then? Now that now that we've you know gotten you on that, how is that yeah, yeah. different from praying? I mean, keep in mind that the moment of silence was supposed to be the moment of silence in schools was supposed to be a compromise, where it was like, okay, we're not going to say it's time for us to do man our mandated school thing. prayer. Yep. But if you want to use that moment of silence to pray, you can do that. Does that sure. mean that teachers can't do that? No. Teachers no aren't allowed to pray? See, that's the total, that that's different. And, and the How? reason it's different is because it's personal and private. 
There's a reason why you're in front a moment of, of silence when the si- moment of but silence b- happens. Prayers are in your brain. <laughs> prayers are inside your head. Okay, and but but if you see a teacher on a desk do this during the moment of silence, like like put their put their hands together, okay, and like bow their head, you yeah. know that they're praying. Is that but allowed? you don't know what they're praying? You know, <laughs> no, but, honestly, but they could be pray- they could be a Satanist. No, but but you they you don't know what is in their head. It is personal. It is private. And it's not an endorsement of any particular so, thing. So are you saying? So are you saying then that if this coach, in this specific case, like was not audible, like he just that if if you're saying if 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 it was the I case the, that yeah. this coach just went to the went to the, uh, the the field after the game and just did the kneel or did the I, I don't know was it like was he tebowing was that I have it? no idea like, no idea like and just just tebowed or, or knelt and like put his hands up and didn't say anything didn't say anything audible you'd be that that would be okay would As that long, be okay yeah yes okay. i think that would be fine like like i think that would be fine if he if he did not say hey come pray with me or hey i'm going to go pray come with me or like okay. hey i'm going to go pray you can come with me none of that if he was silent and wa- and did his prayer alone privately not endorsing religion but for even even if the it, class. even if it was in view of everybody even if it was in view okay. Okay. because again it's his thoughts you can't regulate someone's thoughts it's okay. his it's a, it's a it's a basic nondescript action the 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 comparison that justices were trying to make was hey if if someone if a secular person did the same action walked out on the field knelt yeah. You didn't know what they were doing. You didn't know what religion they were. You would do nothing. Okay. But the I'm fact told, that he was that's saying totally fine it with like, that. you know, the fact that he was father explicitly that, endorsing like, it yeah. is a problem. And and I think that's a problem for a very clear for like a very specific reason, which is I think we need that bright line between state endorsement of religion um and like and the potential implication of that by representatives of the state. Um, uh, because I don't see, um, well, I don't see the difference between a couple of things. One, I don't see how being in a position of authority, being a role model for the kids as the coach's job was explicitly supposed to be and giving like religious speeches and loud prayers and all that stuff is significantly different from like, a required school prayer. Like for a required school prayer, you can just shut up. You don't have to think the Christian thoughts, but there is an immense amount of pressure to participate or at least to posture. And I think that that equally exists when a person who is in a position of authority, especially as like a position of a coach who's able to make decisions about playing time and all that stuff without any deference to anybody, right? If you're a teacher, you can't give someone an F on a math test because they weren't Christian. But if you're a coach, you can bench someone for no fucking reason and no one has any idea why and it might be because they're not a Christian. The other thing is, um, I don't see how when someone is is in a position of authority and believes a specific thing and makes those beliefs widely known and is explicitly endorsing them like as the, in, in their capacity as that person of authority, right? And especially when that belief aligns with the majority, right? I think the distinction between being able to join if you like and being able to abstain if you like is 
a kind of a distinction without a difference, right? 40 of your classmates plus the, plus the person that decides how long you're going to play or whether you'll play at all are going to get together, overtly decide that they'll pray together uh, a religion that you don't believe in. And, but don't worry, you're allowed not to join. Right? What if it was the school mandates that everybody prays, but don't worry, you're allowed to abstain if you want. What if it was just the students and not the coach? Because I feel like there would be the exact same social pressure that mm -hmm. you're describing. Yep. Just without the state official there. Yeah. So it's, I feel like that right there, again, basically the same effect. Mm hmm. Like, we have to say that would be okay because you can't tell students that they can't be religious. Yeah, absolutely. I, exactly the same social pressure, but so not then, the state endorsement, which is, I think, I a just, critical part. But it's still a person's private beliefs. Like, yes, but they're, they're expressing... But they're not. It, it, it's the person's individual beliefs. Yes, they're mm -hmm. expressing them. You know, the football coach can express all the opinions he likes about football or the school or the faculty. Like, there are lots of opinions that don't run afoul of the law, right? There are lots of endorsements that don't necessarily, that aren't necessarily constitutionally prohibited from being entangled with the state. A religious position expressly advocated for, there is a long tradition that that is, and, and the legal tradition that that is, not to be entangled with the state and so you know again as i said i don't know when when opinions and start and religions end or whatever it will only when you get excessively in the realm of entangling religion and the state that you start to run afoul of the establishment clause the thing that might convince me that this was this specific case was wrong is the fact that he was doing it in the locker room which is a place he had special access to because of his position mm -hmm. um the fact that like whether or not when he was inviting other people, if that was like how he worded it, I know you said distinction sure. without a difference to me. It's a, it's a big difference. I think, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it is a distinction without a difference. Like if people felt pressured by the state to join in a prayer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I, I don't think it's how people feel though. Like I don't, that doesn't matter as much to me. It matters what he was doing because a person can feel any which way about sure. anything like sure. a person can see a cross necklace and think oh yeah, fuck, i better yeah. wear a cross necklace yeah. in order to impress my coach a yeah you're trying to go to like a reasonable person standard of like would a reasonable person feel pressured to by the state to participate in a prayer well but even then like i i mean i see that and maybe maybe this is just me being like me being someone that came from a family that was also secular. So like if, if a bunch of people were religious at school, I could easily go home and just be like, well, you know, wash off another day of Christianity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and like maybe somebody who, you know, faces that type of shit at home wants to go to school and just be free of it. But I don't know. Like that's, if other people are joining it of their own volition and you mm -hmm. decide you don't want to, then don't do it. Yeah. To me, like a big part of it is the out loud thing. Like, I think if you're preaching, you're preaching. Yeah. I don't know that 
if I if I were to see a video of like what it looked like, sure. Like I know we've seen pictures of it, but if I were to see a video, that depending on how loud it was and how brazen it was, that might also change change my mm -hmm. mind. Yeah, fair enough. And now we land as we usually do with our highlights. Nathan, what's your highlight this week? <laughs> <laughs> this has been a long one. It's been a really long um, episode. My highlight is that uh, we finally got a bed. That's like we great We finally news. got our new bed, and we, we put it together, and we're going to sleep in it for the first time tonight. Like, we've been sleeping on, our, on the guest bed, which is, you know, it's fine. But, like, we got a really good bed. Jeez, dude. Keep it in the Lawrence v. Texas. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, what's your highlight, Mike's? My highlight, Nathan, is your birthday. Happy Aww. birthday, dude. Thank another you. year around the sun. Thank another you. Another year with us. Cancer free. That All, is, yeah. like, I'm just, yeah. Happy I, birthday, yeah, buddy. that, uh, that was my highlight. Damn. That actually, I, yeah, my parents <laughs> actually came by and we had a, and I had a really nice time with them. And, you know, we, they, I, I, my mother got me hard root beer and I Ooh, love hard root beer and, nice. and cheesecake is a birthday cake. So, so oh, yeah, you actually, like cheesecake? No, that, I love cheesecake. Dude, I'm going to make you a cheesecake. I just made the best cheesecake last weekend. Dude, I love you. I'm going to make you cheesecake. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. No, I'm sorry. That was that was that that is my highlight. What am I thinking? I don't know, dude. I turned 27. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, we'll thank our amazing patrons. So, thank you to Taylor Bloom, uh, Jerry DeViller, Fade Out Scoop, Kyle Chaska, and Tobias Janssen. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs> <laughs>